Let's face it, all companies are really in it for the money. A healthy profit means a healthy business. But what happens when you don't make a rasher from all your hard work? Every penny you make, well, it has to be handed over. And to boot, you have to conform to the highest standards of governance. Who'd want to work for a charity? I'm Jonathan Healy, and this is Red Business. Business Podcast with Jonathan Healy. Welcome to this, the 10th episode of Red Business. We'll be talking later with Michal Sheridan, a great guy who runs the Mercy Foundation, and he starts by revealing a big secret. Probably for the first time admitting as well that I actually don't live in Cork. We'll also hear from Director of Services at Cork City Council, Pat Ledridge, on what's happening in the city in terms of planning and construction. But first, I want to go back to a story we covered in an earlier episode. Sean O'Tuma came up with the idea for Firebowl, a little device that sounds an alarm if your phone charger overheats. It's designed for chargers and um, and other laptop chargers, but it's, it can be put onto any surface in which somebody's worried about overheating. Um, so whether it's a, a child's tablet or their games console, this can be attached to it also. How does it alert me that something's gone wrong? There is an inbuilt alarm in the device, so once it detects a temperature over 54 degrees Celsius, it sounds the alarm and alerts you to the, to the problem. So give it a blast there. Back then, Sean barely had the prototype, and oh, how things have changed. Um, so, I mean, all that media attention was great. We had nearly 2 million impressions on Twitter. We're the second highest read article on the journal that day, and it just really created a lot of conversation among people, gave us some really great feedback. Um, but the issue with getting that much attention and being contacted from distributors and retailers all over the world, I mean, we were being contacted from India, Australia, um, the US, Canada. The issue with that is being able to scale the company quickly. And to be able to scale the company to, to that extent, you, you kind of need the team, which I don't have in place right now. So I was relying on on the contacts that I had there. Um, so people kind of like the, the in Enterprise Ireland and local enterprise offices who were able to put me in contact with people. Um, and then there's companies like Fuller Marketing, Ruth and Sheila there have been a huge help and Ito Sullivan and all these people will have tons of contacts because they've kind of been there and done that before um, and I suppose for every plan A that I'm putting in place for to be able to scale the company I need to be able to, to have a plan B and a plan C because I suppose that the nature of startups is that it's extremely unpredictable and, and things can change very quickly I mean with the before the media attention we were planning on selling a couple of hundred devices uh, our first month we sold more than our first month's projections in less than 24 hours. So it just really showed us that we need to prepare to be able to scale the company and to be able to move efficiently into international markets quickly. What was it like to ship a month of product in just a day? It was really good validation. I mean, my biggest fear is that it's a brand new product. People hadn't seen it before. So... Getting that much, uh, getting that many sales in a day, uh, really just validated the company for me and showed that the work that I'd been putting in over the last year is paying off, and, and that it is something that uh, that is a huge concern of people about electronics uh, overheating, and that uh, this product will ine- could inevitably save a life, and people really saw the value in that. How are you going to scale this company now? Who have you been speaking to? Yeah, I mean, we've spoken with um, a lot of investors over the last few 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 weeks um some pretty big players in the in the industry but unfortunately i mean 
the deal wasn't there they were trying to take a bit too much of the company um, and it just wasn't something I was willing to do at, at that time um, they were trying to take nearly half of the company and it just wasn't it didn't make any sense for me at this point to be to be giving away that kind of equity because quickly I'd lose control of the company um, so I mean the, the plan is now to, is to try and do a crowdfunding campaign where I can show the investors uh, and, and validate the product even more that people really do do want it and will buy it um, and I suppose the beauty of the crowdfunding campaign that we're doing is that the backing that people do give to us, th there is no risk because we are already shipping the product. Um, I had 3,000 of them uh, come in last week, so we'll be ready to ship by the beginning of August. How's the crowdfunding thing going to work? So right now we're building a, an email campaign, um, also building up our social media accounts. Um, for any crowdfunding campaign, they say that about 30% of the initial funding will kind of come from from family and friends. So that's what kind of what we're focusing on at the moment. We're shooting a ton of content. So uh, over this weekend, we're going to be shooting video and um, taking a ton of ton of shots. And the people in Soma Cafe in town were good enough to to leave us shoot there last week. So it's just all about building enough content and making making it interesting enough. The Red Business Podcast with Jonathan Healy. Sean O'Toole of Firemole there. We wish him the very best of luck in his search for funding. Now Cork has seen a lot of big development of late, the capital opening being one example. So what else is planned? I've been speaking with one of the big bosses at City Hall, Pat Ledwidge, who's Director of Services. And I started by putting the obvious comparison to Dublin and asked how far our second city is lagging behind the capital. I suppose you have to put things in context, Jonathan. Um, I don't accept that Cork is necessarily behind Dublin, given the different bases we start from, and given Dublin's different function as a capital city and as an urban entity that's four times the size of Cork. If you take it as Cork City versus Dublin City or Greater Cork versus Greater Greater Dublin. Um, I think what you have to understand from our point of view as a local authority is that we're running a city and cities just aren't about business. So a lot of our what we do is around our social element and given our constrained boundary, a lot of the our political masters are very focused on that social element, which is very important to us. And that's as it should be in a city that's sustainable. That's the first thing. Cork is quite successful within its own um its own parameters. Um, if you look at the whole of the county and the city together, we have um, around, I think it's 33,000 FDI jobs here, which is a phenomenal performance. And consultants who come to Cork from outside the city are constantly astonished about the vibrancy of the city, about the economic diversity of the city, and about the fact that we have such a a pool of talent within the city. There, there is a lag, though, and it, it's, it's an obvious lag. How can we explain it? Why is Dublin that little bit further ahead? Is it just because it's a capital? It's because it's a capital. It's because it has a critical mass of a million-plus people. Uh, and at the end of the day, Cork is a city of, if you take the metropolitan area, about 300,000 people. Dublin is always going to be more attractive than, than Cork, and that's just the way it is. We have a number of challenges here, which we're gradually overcoming. We're making great progress in how people get around the city. We have had a huge boost with our transatlantic connection, which is more important to Cork than any of the other cities, because they all have transatlantic connections, uh, Dublin, Belfast, and, and obviously Shannon. Um, I think if you look at, if you say we're behind, I'd counter that by saying that in Q1, 
our Q2 and Q3 in 2016, 50% of net job creation in the state was in the southwest region, and the majority of that was in the Cork metropolitan region. And the feedback we get from companies, the feedback we get from business associations, and the feedback we get from developers is that Cork is an attractive place to do business. We have the talent. We have certain issues around finance in putting the floor place in space, but even um, aside from that, um, we think One Albert Key was a game changer for the city and we expect by next Christmas to have um, over 500,000 square feet of offices either under development or through the planning process and allied to that will be at least um, one more, two more hotels and also um, one more, um, a, a large, first, the first um, built for rent uh, apartment block in the city for 200 units and just just to I mean if you even look at the hotel occupancy for the last five years going right into the, la the last recession our average hotel occupancy was over 80 percent that's phenomenal um, achievement for mm. a city you know let's talk about the is it a field of dreams approach in many ways Pat that you know build it and they will come uh, whereas perhaps others have built the products before they actually let it out. I mean, is there a cautiousness on the part of development? No, it, I, I, I call it good planning. Cork uh, didn't end up, Cork City didn't end up with ghost estates, and we didn't end up with half-finished office blocks. Unfortunately, um, other places did, particularly Dublin, um, and to a certain extent that's a moral hazard, because if you have it half-built, then you get the money to build it, but it's much more difficult to get the money to actually start from the ground up. But having said that, and this is our experience looking at some UK cities and some other cities in Ireland, the private sector are, um, are investing in floor space here. The floor space is full almost the minute it's finished. One Albert Key is full, the capital is full. We expect development to start on Camden Key, a smaller development, about 50,000 square feet, within the next few weeks. I have no doubt that that's when, when that's built its full. There is a, a challenge around residential, which we, which we are addressing through things like LIHAV, the major urban uh, housing development sites process. We have done a huge amount of work ourselves in working with developers in bringing uh, residential developments forward. There is, without doubt, a funding issue because the banks are no longer lending speculative money for pro projects. So um, developers and people who want to, to um, and sm smaller people who want to build whatever offices or, or houses are having to be more creative in how they get their funding. And that's, again, something we're working on. We, under the radar, we constantly have people coming into the city. We're showing off what the city has to them and we're trying to put tie-ups in place where they can invest their money in what is a very transparent economy, a very safe economy, an economy that um, is actually um, primed for growth. And as I said to you, when the floor space is built, it's full. So that's the conundrum for us. What do you say to the criticism that the council has in some ways, hindered development through red tape, uh, through structures that are out there. You mentioned funding. If a developer was here, they'd say, well, there's an awful lot of hoops we have to jump through. Many of them they deem to be unnecessary. What do you say to that argument? I wouldn't accept that. Um, red tape is there for a reason, and it's very easy to uh, denigrate it as red tape. But as I said, a society is a society. Democratic institutions demand red tape. 
and uh, we have seen what happened as in the last recession where a certain amount of red tape wasn't adhered to and the damage that did in, in other, not in necessarily in the local authority areas, but in other areas of government. So red tape is essential. And red tape also gives surety to people coming in, whether they're investing their money or their time or coming to live there. So if you have red tape, you have a well-run city. I talk about the crane count, which is the, the brutal way of assessing mm. this. What's the pipeline like? The pipeline is very, um, very uh, healthy in terms of commercial floor space. So we probably have permitted or are in positive engagement with developers for over a million square feet of prime office development. Um, we have a process under place now because of the demand for residential development that many smaller landowners are applying for permission to convert their substandard office space over the shop or on, on secondary streets into residential. We've granted maybe about two uh, permissions for about 200 units in the last year and a half, and we reckon about 50 to 70 of those are, are in play at the moment. Uh, even without any infrastructure, we have permissions for about 2,500 units. It's just frustrating that developers aren't uh, moving ahead with those and from our research with the property industry and with private industry we understand that it's a funding issue. The Red Business Podcast with Jonathan Healy. Now to the business of charity. It is a sector that's seen its fair share of troubles of late and is hard to keep having to ask people for money. So why do people who would have very successful careers elsewhere end up working with charities? That's the question I wanted to put to Michal Sheridan of the Mercy Foundation. Michal, tell me a little bit about yourself. You're not a corpsman. I'm not, no, and, and, and it's probably for the first time admitting as well that I actually don't live in Cork. Uh, so I come here to work every day. Uh, no, I, um, I grew up in Cavan, um, and then I spent a long time in Dublin, and myself and my wife, then we moved back down to Munster uh, about 12 years ago when our oldest guy was a week old. Uh, we moved Lockstock out of Dublin and we moved to a place called Hospital in Limerick so it is just north of Cork um, but uh, yeah as I say I come down here every day I've been coming down here for a number of years. So you come from hospital to the hospital? Oh 24-7 that's that was that was the key thing for me when I went for the job you know the commitment to commitment to it was the amount of time I spend in hospital um, but not actually do you know and it's funny a lot of people say god how long is the drive and it, you know it must it must be difficult it takes me about an hour um, and the benefit of it actually is particularly in both in the morning and the evening, we have four kids at home and my wife works full time. So it's chaos in the morning getting everybody out the door. So I actually have an hour in the morning to calm down uh, before I walk in the door of the office. And similarly, going home in the evening, I have an hour to kind of offload and process things through my head. So, you know, when you're driving up the motorway, um, it actually is a it's good therapy as well. The charity sector, you, you've worked in the charity sector a lot. Why were you drawn to it? What what? Let's, let's make it, let's put it plainly. It wasn't because you were going to earn a fortune. I had no idea what I was going to earn. Uh, I, I, I did my degree in Minute, so I did a, a, as kind of people will joke about, I got the arts degree. Uh, thankfully, it's now NUI Minute, um, so it has some credibility uh, for, my, for my own sake. Um, and I got involved in student politics. Uh, I was a quiet young guy, uh, but just happened to get involved in student union. Uh, class rep, uh, you know, ENTS officer, all those kind of things, ran for election um, and spent a year as a sabbatical um, and kind of enjoyed the fact of having money in my pocket and not having to study. So I made a decision then that I wasn't going to go back to education at that point. I had my degree done uh, and I had a couple of opportunities, but we'd, 
we'd been involved a lot in, in significant fundraising events while we were there, uh, one that is in existence for 30 years, uh, a cycle from Anu to Galway, and it just got me interested in the whole area of fundraising. Uh, and a job came up with ISPCC, uh, that was back kind of in the mid-90s as a what we would now call a community fundraiser. And uh, I went for that job and uh, was successful and, and spent a number of years there, then went to Special Olympics for a short time, was asked then to go back to ISPCC, uh, which also has the Childline service. Um, had a lot of glamorous events at the time, you know, hanging out with Duran Duran at, at concerts. Uh, and then I uh, was head of fundraising there for four years, but spent two of those years uh, operating out of our Limerick office because we'd, myself and my wife had, had moved down at that stage. And then there was uh, an ad uh, looking for somebody to help to really set up the foundation here at the Mercy. It was a new venture, a new idea, uh, something that the hospital was keen and to put in place, as were the, uh, the leadership uh, of the, the Mercy. So looked at the opportunity and uh, the rest is history. When you join a charity, you know it's going to be done on a shoestring, that, that your overheads have to be kept really low because the main purpose of the exercise is to raise money for, in this case, the Mercy Hospital. Does that kind of make this a very unique type of business insofar as the profit that you're looking to make doesn't come to the business, it doesn't come to the shareholder, it just goes to help people? Yeah, I mean, that's a, there's a few things there. I mean, the first thing is obviously the, there is huge pressure on... Uh, organizations in the not-for-profit sector to make huge returns in terms of profits. I mean, you look at uh, some of our income streams, we could be generating profits of 80-90%. Others, we might be be generating profits of 50%. We, we, get, uh, we get given out to for the 50% uh, return. But, you know, in a business, if businesses are returning margins of 3-4%, they're, they're performing really well. So, you know, that's something, I suppose, in terms of the sector that is a challenge um, and sometimes is a stick that we're beaten with, I think, unfairly. Is it hard to raise money when you have so many other competing sectors, so many other competing interests? I mean, just take the not-for-profit, the charity sector alone. You're looking for the same euro that maybe the guide dogs are looking for, um, maybe the ISPCA is looking for, maybe the ISPCC. How do you, how do you come at that? Because you are all technically comp- in competition with each other. Oh, absolutely. It's competitive. You know, we all get on and, and we all share information. Um, I actually was looking at figures there recently, uh, probably from the top 10 charities that are fundraising in Cork alone. Uh, you're looking at them collectively generating about 11 million euro in fundraising. Um, and that's not counting all of the smaller organizations. That's really just the top 10 by fundraised income. Yeah, absolutely. We, we are all chasing the same euro, I think. Um, what, what we know and, and others who are successful is the first thing we have to do is be very clear on uh, the sector of society that we're working with. Um, so you would have organisations like uh, Cork Simon who very clearly are in that homeless space. We're very clearly in the hospital healthcare space. Uh, now that puts us in, in competition with other uh, local hospitals and national hospitals as well, especially national children's hospitals. So then where we have to look is what is unique and different about the Mercy uh, what are the services that are unique and different um, and where we get a lot of our support as well uh, which is crucial and, and really is down to the care they get in the hospital is the support we get from grateful patients and their families they are a group of uh, people who we hold very very dearly and where we have where sometimes that can present us with cha- challenges is these people sometimes are very ill uh, we have uh, gotten very close and our staff have gotten very close to people who've been fundraising for us and those people, uh, I can think of lots of people who've passed away 
you know, so not only are we running a, a, an organization in a business-like manner, but there's a huge human element to it as well. Um, and we're always very conscious of it. So from a competitive perspective, yes, I just think it's about differentiation. And I think there's, uh, you have to now start having in- intelligent conversations with people in order to secure their support. One of the big areas that you fundraise for is obviously on, in the area of cancer. Um, and there isn't a person listening to this right now whose life won't have been affected by it. One in two people are going to be affected by cancer during their lifetime as we all get older and more things can go wrong with us. Does that help that it is such a pervasive illness? Does it help you sell that message? I mean, you know, everybody knows somebody who's a cancer. They may have even had cancer themselves. Yeah, I mean, it, cancer uh, in the community is, is a reality. Um, and one of the things, obviously, in the last uh, few days that has come out is the new cancer strategy. Um, and one of the things that we were, were interested in is we build a lot of our decisions in terms of funding on four pillars. Uh, but what's core and central to that is the patient. And that's around uh, our investing our donor funds in diagnostics, in treatment, in care, and in research. And what was interesting, for example, in the new cancer strategy was they were the blocks upon which the strategy was built. So our focus really in terms of cancer um, is about how we can impact in those areas. Um, we, we don't necessarily talk about instill a fear in people of, of cancer. People are aware of that enough. And as you said, people have experienced cancer. So for us, really, it's just about looking at how we can have an impact on cancer in the community, starting at a very early stage. So one of the things that we do, uh, which we're probably not known for, uh, we would do a lot of uh, outreach talks, and particularly in schools around testicular cancer. There's, there was a piece of research a number of years back that showed that the rate of testicular cancer in Cork was about 20% higher than anywhere else in the country. So we were asked at the time by the consultants in neurology, would we go out and start to talk to young men uh, about the symptoms of testicular cancer? Not to stop it, but to encourage young men to self-check so that we, they might start to find the illness earlier. Um, and that worked very successfully. And we even know of uh, young men we spoke to in groups, and out of those groups, some young men went on to be diagnosed with testicular cancer very shortly after we gave the talk because they, they self-checked and they found lumps. Um, I just want to see your reaction. I'm going to say a couple of words. CRC, rehab. When you hear that now, I mean, you're, you're, I can see you're, you're grimacing ever so slightly because the scandals at those charities impacted every charity. What has it been like since and how have you managed to win over the trust of the public that the money they give here is money that's going to go where it's supposed to go? Yeah, I mean, I think what happened there was, was really issues around poor oversight uh, poor governance. You know, even today you look at how long some board members are serving on some charities. There are people serving on boards of organisations 20, 30 years. So you would have to ask the question, you know, who is running that organisation? Now, what happened in those organisations as well was uh, it was very clear that the power sat uh, with the executive leadership, which isn't healthy either. And I think you have to have a balance. So the things that we have put in place here, and we've always had them in place, we have an independent board, uh, independent from the hospital. Uh, it's made up of 10 external business people. Uh, funnily enough, we have a gender mix of 50-50, which we didn't set out to do, but it happened to be that way. We, we targeted the people that we wanted with the skill sets that we wanted. What the, what the scandals have done is really they've put everybody on their toes. Um, what we did to uh, address concerns that people might have was we, we just made statements around our, our good governance. 
Uh, we have one of the things that has been talked about now in the sector is is your organisation triple locked. And what that really means, have you signed up to three really important uh, documents in, in the not-for-profit sector? One is the guiding principles on fundraising. The other is the code of governance for the not-for-profit sector. And the third is that you're using SORP as your um, accounting reporting uh, package. And we have all three of those in place. And nationally, I think there's only about 40 or 50 organisations who have that in place in a sector with eight and a half thousand, uh, supposedly eight and a half thousand not-for-profits. So we have put all of our ducks in a row properly. So we have, we are externally audited. Uh, we've even from time to time had external spot checks. Mm. Um, but all of that, all of that's good, right? But yeah. you must have gotten frustrated. You must have gotten quite angry, no more than the public was angry, when you heard of the, the, the entire sector being tarnished by the actions of some. Yeah, absolutely. I stopped reading some particular online uh, news feeds because people who worked in the sector, I mean, the things that stand out in my mind were uh, we were called fat cats and pigs at the trough. And to go back to our earlier conversation, you know, why did you get into it, uh, into the sector in the first place? Um, my answer was, well, I didn't know how much I could earn. And it's not about the money. You really do set off uh, to try to achieve something for people. Um, but you have to as well pay people to do that work. And there are very, very good and very smart people working in the sector. I think what um, I, I use the, the example of if you go for um, a fish supper and uh, you don't like it, you will not go back to that restaurant again. Uh, but you won't stop going to restaurants everywhere. What happened with the scandals was people tarnished us all with the one brush. And we are all very, very different. I was going to ask you to finish up about what happens next, but uh, the walls are literally papered with the ideas. Um, this house on Wood Street, which is not a million miles away from us here, that's going to be used for cancer patients. Yeah, so we had a... Really, the genesis of this was conversations with cancer nurses who were with patients at the time of their diagnosis. Um, and most of those patients are seen either in the consulting rooms or in uh, the outpatients department here at the hospital. And... Through no fault of the hospitals, they're really just, in the minutes and moments after that diagnosis, it was difficult for the nurses to bring those people anywhere. Uh, and what we noticed and knew was they were getting back in their cars, they were getting a taxi or getting on a bus. Heartbroken. Absolutely. Terrified, confused, angry. You, you name all of the emotions. So what we just wanted to do was to provide a place, a space for these people to come. Now, it's turned into a big space um, and it will be an expensive place but it is the right thing to do and it is the right time to do it is it fulfilling i mean most people if they run their own business they get money in their pocket at the end of the day and they'll go yeah that was a good day what's a good day in the charity sector so a few weeks ago uh, we brought some of our staff up to start to link them back with our projects <clears throat> it was something we wanted to do we, we worried that our staff here uh, weren't seeing the impact of their work so going out and uh, collecting a check in a pub at 12 o'clock at night wh where was the impact of that so as I, one of the things we talked about earlier on was our new EUS service and we actually brought some of our staff to see that happening um, and at the time it was an older patient who had a, a benign disease which so therefore it was a good thing to be there for that but what we heard about earlier that day was a patient who had been scanned on two occasions in another hospital uh, just through a CT scanner uh, for concerns that some of the, the medical staff had and nothing was found so he was referred to Dr. Martin Buckley here, and he went through a, an EUS procedure using equipment that our donors had funded, and they found a massive tumour at the back of his liver. So that happened accidentally. We had no idea we were going to hear that story. Um, so for us to know that, and, our, and for our donors to know, 
that by what they did in terms of making donations enabled us to buy this equipment, which we'll be funding over the next number of years. Um, and what that resulted in was one, we know of one case, and there will be many, where the existing services that were available in terms of diagnostics weren't picking up the problem. Uh, but the new equipment that our donors had funded found a massive tumour, um, which means that that gentleman at least has some hope. What is the website if people want to help? It's mercyfundraising.ie. Michal Sheridan, we wish you the best of luck. I look forward to coming down for the opening of that centre when you get your 1.8 million. Thanks for talking to us in Red Business. Thank you, Jonathan. My thanks to Michal and to Sean and to Pat and to Niamh Hennessy for helping put this all together. And thank you for listening. Don't forget the new podcast goes up every Wednesday. You can download them from redfm.ie and you can subscribe on iTunes. Catch you on the next one.